Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. (laughs) I have what I would deem the best voice in my kitchen right now that I've ever heard. I'm with Alistair Hutton, who has, I'm going to stall this so that people are like, what is this voice? You, sir, have an amazing voice. Well, of course, I can't hear it. It doesn't, I can, I can, so it doesn't it mean anything to, to me, you know. <laughs> As someone who's not a big fan of their own voice <laughs> and still doesn't really understand why I decided to do a podcast, you have an excellent speaking voice. That's very kind. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I think the first time I heard your excellent speaking voice was maybe 2010, maybe? It's Stirling Armed Forces Day. They're all thereabouts, yes. yeah. I... And we've met up on an annual basis ever since. Aye, aye. And it's always been a great pleasure <laughs> oh, for me. Oh, you're a star. And I always get a lovely email from you in advance to ask, what are you going to be doing this time and who's coming? You're always so organised, sir. Well, I like to be well prepared. Yes, which you very much are. And on the day, I'm just always amazed at your absolute like, precision and you're on it and the voice is just something else. So, we've got so much to speak about. I did I did a thing. I googled Alistair <laughs> Hutton and then I found all sorts of stuff. You think you know somebody. You know, I meet you once a year and I thought I had just sussed Alistair. I was like, yep, he's got a great voice. He's an amazing announcer. He knows what he's talking about. And then I just found a whole load of stuff that was just like, right, Alistair is on the podcast. It needs to happen. And you kindly say yes. <laughs> well, I, you, you may have got the wrong one, but... <laughs> Well, we'll find we'll just, out. <laughs> just fake it. <laughs> so, my first question is the announcing the, the the events. How did that come about? Certainly, the military events, because obviously we've met at Stirling Armed Forces Day. I think that the answer is that they were desperate at the time, and. That, I was all that was left when somebody oh, was needed. My head going, no, 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 no. <laughs> but it would be only fair to say to you that um, although uh, I hadn't really any experience at it, I got a job as an announcer on the BBC long before you were born. Right, okay. How I got it, I don't know to this day because I was unemployed and a phone call came to the house in Glasgow and asked if I'd come in for an audition. So I thought, well, I've got no job, I may as well. This would be very, this would be exciting. So I went in and got the job. But I still to this day don't know how they singled me out because I had no experience at it. Wow. And what exactly were you, were you doing? Well, I was reading the news, announcing programs, doing a weather forecast, all that kind of thing, you know. Goodness. And then... That continued on. That was on a contract basis. And then I got a a fixed job doing the same. No, not doing the same thing, but doing uh, announcing in the BBC in Northern Ireland. But they were, they were experimenting with a new technique of self-drive, which meant that the announcer also operated the equipment. But this was 
vision as well as sound equipment. So is announcing and operating sound and vision faders at the same time. And we proved that it could be made to work. So I did that for three years and then decided I would come back to Scotland if I could get a job, rang up the the chap in charge of the announcers in Scotland, who had changed by then, um, asked, and he said, yes, he did uh, need somebody. So I just came back and carried on there. That was 68, carried on there until 79. Goodness. So I guess that first day when you were like, okay, I'm here. I don't know why. Was it just like hand, all hands on deck, like, let's just figure out how you do this? It, I, absolutely, because I, I had no training. I'm not a thespian. I haven't, I'm not a lovey. I don't wear tights. I just, um, I didn't know what an announcer did, so mm. I followed the the guys that did, watched what they did, listened to what they did, um, and just picked it up as I went along. And were, in those days... That was in the 1960s. Announcers were still gentlemen, so there were guys, they weren't just any ragtag and bobtails sitting down and seeing whatever come in their mind, but they, you know, these were guys who had thought about speaking clearly, trying to communicate with as big an audience as would mm. understand them. The BBC rule of thumb for that is, imagine that you are addressing an elderly couple uh, sitting in their small living room. Right. And the point of that is you're talking to two people whose hearing may not be that good, so you're, you're, you must speak yes. clearly, and you must try to pace it nicely. Um, when I was working in Northern Ireland, but it's, that is very difficult, because when I was working in Northern Ireland, my mother, who'd come over to visit me, came back, and on the train met a man, an elderly farmer from Fermanagh in the west of the north of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And he said, could you tell your son to speak more slowly? And I thought, well, yes, but I wouldn't be understood up the Crumlin Road in Belfast. So, uh, I mean, you can't... You're trying to pitch it down the middle. Balance, yeah, I mean, the people, you know, people in the inner suburbs in a city like Glasgow, mm. they speak like lightning, and the people out in the country speak very, very slowly. So yeah. you've got to pitch it somewhere in between so that you can be understood by as many people as possible. Yeah, which isn't just something you can necessarily just do. It is some, a skill that you're going to hone. And there are a lot of people nowadays I hear on the radio and television who haven't got it, mm. but they think that because they want to be a personality, they are. But no, actually, it takes a lot more than that. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> and I'm already thinking about how I'm speaking now to you. You're perfectly clear. I don't Thank think you. anything. But you're there right. Is, there is nothing wrong with an accent. No, no. No, of uh, course not. It is the... It's the it's whether you speak carefully or carelessly. A lot of people just speak carelessly mm. and confuse that with an accent, and that's a completely different thing. That's just sloppy. Yeah, you can be understood whatever accent it's. Oh yes, a good time. clear accent is. There's nothing wrong with a good clear accent, um, but a lot of people are just sloppy in the way mm. they speak, and they're quite difficult to understand. Mm. So. I feel like I'm darting all over the place, but we don't need to go chronologically because obviously we met you at Stirling Armed Forces Day, so there, there, and I know there is a military connection for you because you were in the TA. Yes. And the paratroopers. Yes. 
So when was this and how did this come about? To go back one pace before the BBC, yes. in 1954 my father died and my mother very boldly decided that she would take her three children to Australia. And so we went to Australia, and after a good deal of jiggling about, um, my mother, who had worked in the London theatres during the, before the Second World War, got a job starting up the wardrobe for the new Australian television service, um, the new Australian television service in Melbourne. So we we began to develop an interest in broadcasting there. Um, now, I didn't go into broadcasting in Australia. I went in and got a job as a newspaper reporter. Okay. So, so what age were you when you moved to Australia? 14. And you were moving from where? Where had you been? In Dollar and Clap Manager, just oh, along at the Hill dollar Foot. Dollar very well, teaching I, Dollar all the time. Yeah. So, um, so that must have been, goodness, like for, you know, to lose your, your father and then to move away. Aye, but that was all right. Aye, but it was interesting. It was very good. Well, the benefit of it was, of course, that you got a very good perspective on Scotland. Mm. Because in Scotland, it's a bit insular in the sense that, I mean, at school we were taught about Wallace and Bruce and Scottish battles and so on and so forth. Going to Australia, um, I learned to see Scotland from half a world away and its relative place in Europe. So... In my class at school were boys and girls from pretty well every country in Europe. Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, the Baltic States, the Mediterranean. Well, they were all refugees. A lot of them driven out of Europe by communism, you know, and... uh, it was very, very interesting because you got a, you got then a wide, wide canvas and you suddenly thought, I've never heard of some of these places. Hmm. Or at least I'd heard of them, but I had no idea where they mm, were or yeah. what they did, blah, 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 blah. So, that, so I came back quite well educated, but not necessarily from the school, which, in which I lasted only about a year and a half. <laughs> but um, I got then a job... But I got a taste for it because after school, uh, my best chum and I, a chap called Desi Milliner, who became a doctor, and later on in life, he, I think, may well have saved my life, but that's another story. Okay. Uh, He uh, he and I used to go into a local commercial radio station where they held a a program called Rumpus Room, in which the kids uh, coming out of school would read the ads and announce the records. And I liked doing that, and they liked me doing that. And so I got some taste for it, but I didn't go into broadcasting then. Mm. But obviously, when I came back to Scotland, I got a job working on the Press and Journal in Aberdeen. But the idea of going into broadcasting still appealed. And so when I got this call out of the blue to go to the BBC, I just thought, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll go for yeah, that. And if I can get it, it'd be wonderful. So tasted all those years ago? Yeah. yeah. So that was good, that. Mm. So then, the TA. Oh yes, the TA. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I was working on the Press and Journal in Aberdeen, uh, and um, I was out one night in a public house, and um, I listened to this guy, who was a blowhard, blowing hard to the girls around him, how he had uh, jumped out of a a balloon in a parachute, and so on and so on and so forth. And I thought... What a blowhard. But I thought, actually, it's no good me thinking he's a blowhard. I'll have to do it myself to prove that I I could do that. 
And I was <laughs> perfectly... I had that conversation. I don't know if my go-to would be like, right, I think he's talking absolute rubbish, but I'll let you just go and do that. Yeah. So I went down to the <laughs> TA centre. Um, I mean, this chap had done it through the TA. Uh-huh. So I went down to the, the TA centre in Aberdeen uh, where the one the Aberdeen company of the Parachute Battalion was based and signed up. Goodness. And, wow. You know, and then after three months, I moved to Glasgow. I gave up my job in the Press and Journal. It was getting really... Because I'd worked as a newspaper reporter in Australia on big stories, working on the Press and Journal on little stories, like, you know, a child putting a bead in its mother's ear was, a, was big <laughs> news. And I just thought... No, I, I'm sure I could do better than this. Get the big scoop. And I didn't like—I didn't like the kind of grubbiness of local reporting. Like, if somebody died, you were sent out to get a photograph and a story while the family's grieving. You know, and they're, okay. they're sitting yeah. around shell shocked at the death of some young man. And I thought, this is this is grubby. This is seedy. Yeah. So I left went into the wilderness, wait, you know, and then out came this job at the BBC. But I continued to work, you know, to be with the TA. So I moved from the Aberdeen Company to the Glasgow Company and started training with them and did my parachute course and, wow. you know. So you've actually jumped out of planes? Uh, yes. That, <laughs> How many times, like, is the there... The clue is in the name, Parachute <laughs> Regiment. <laughs> Do you have to do so many jumps before you're kind of like certified? Like, how yes. does it work? You have to do seven jumps to get your wings. Okay. First two out of a captive barrage balloon, okay. and then the next five out of uh, an aircraft, the last one of which should be at night. Ah, and right. And then, you know, you're, then you're qualified. Then you get your wings, you get your berry, your red berry, and any paratrooper... Well, there are a number... There are, a, there are always a number of what we call seven-jump wonders who do the do the course, get their wings, and then leave because they just want something to boast to the girls about. But I wanted more than that, and so I stayed and, mm. you know, sort of zigzagged my way through the course and eventually was commissioned to be an officer. I mean, I went through the course as a private soldier. Oddly enough, with a, with a very a good friend of mine, a chap I made good friends with in the TA, who later in life became what was described in the Sunday Times as the brooding genius of British publishing. Wow. So, uh, he was a very bright bloke. Mm. And he made the parachute course quite congenial because he had been at university in Oxford. And RAF Abingdon, where we did our course, where they don't do the training anymore, uh, was not that far out of Oxford. So he bought a little rattletrap sports car and we drove in and out of Oxford and sat in the evenings on the lawns of Worcester College drinking ginger beer and so on. So it was, it was very lovely. congenial. It was, it was lovely. It was lovely. <laughs> but we had to be we had to be back in the um, billets in time at night and so okay. on and so forth. But so we got through all that and then, you know, then you start doing the hard work because a lot of it's, you know, grinding work, tabbing long distance, tabbing, walking long yeah, distances yeah. with a heavy heavy pack and all that kind of thing, and then learning military tactics and that kind of thing. So, you you know, you work your way up. Yeah. It's good fun. What do you think was the highlight of your time in the tea? What Or what was the, the, the best thing about it? What, was, what did you get from it? I think the most important thing that the army teaches you is 
I suppose, understanding as much as anything of a very, very wide range of people. I mean, if you think that I commanded eventually the Glasgow Company of the TA Parachute Battalion. Now, that company brought in a very wide spectrum of people. Mm, can you know, all sorts of all sorts of people, some intelligent, some stupid, all cunning. But they were the sorts of people who you would want at your back if we'd ever had to go to war, largely because they had a native cunning. It's not an intellectual intelligence, but it's a native intelligence. And you would never come across people like that in pretty well any other walk of life. Um, And when you're particularly in a parachute battalion where everybody has to undergo the same trials that were getting out of the aircraft door. So you have an innate respect for every man and you learn you learn to respect them. Uh, you learn their curious ways. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you put that. <laughs> but of course, um, you know, particularly with the Glasgow uh, company, you also learn the the joy of of the the way that Glasgow people talk and think. And of course they're they they have a spontaneous humour which is wonderful. When you're out at night in the hills mm. and all you've got is chattering, yeah. you know, you hear these guys, their banter to and forth. This is not something on a stage. This yeah. is not like Billy Connolly yapping on a stage. These this is real. This is proper uh, banter, spontaneous, not scripted. Um and, uh, Something quite like it. No, absolutely. And that's the sort of thing I think that the army... It also teaches you to to spot when some idiot is trying to put one over on you as well. Mm. So, you know. But working, working cheek by jowl with people like that was a wonderful, wonderful education. That, I think, is what I'd take from it, mm. you know. And how long were you in the tea for? Well, I was in 22 years in the battalion, then another 10 in another unit, which allowed me to do kind of military work, and then another three as the honorary colonel of the Army Cadet Force Battalion in the Lothian Borders. So it was 35 years altogether. And now I'm the president of the Parachute Regimental Association in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Of course, yeah. (laughs) You must have... Just various hats that you need to put on in a day. I feel, who am I today? I obviously know and knew that you were the voice of the military tattoo, which I will, on the podcast, reveal that I have never been to, which is a disgrace, actually. (laughs) I must get there, because it just looks like... You will. It's something very, very unique. It is. Yeah. And was that the military connection for you that then got you... To the tattoo, like where where was the connection there? Well, there was a gap that I ought to sort of fill in for you. Okay, in, go in, in 1979, I was selected to be the candidate in the for the south of Scotland in the first European election. Yes. So I went and did that. I mean, I don't know how because I'd never represented anything. I'd never stood for an election of any kind before, but. You know, these unfortunate people selected me, voted for me, <laughs> they got me. So I did that for 10 years. But broadly speaking, if you look across the south of Scotland and the bits that I represented, it was 
It was a seat that should naturally belong to the Labour Party, not the Conservative Party, which I then belonged to, mm -hmm. but I don't anymore. Um, I hasten to quickly say. Fair enough. <laughs> but I mean, it, when you consider that there's a bust of Keir Hardy outside the town hall in Cumnock, you could tell mm -hmm. this is quite strong Labour country. Okay. But for some reason, the Labour Party then was quite strongly anti-European. The Conservative Party was very pro-European. Well, and of right, course, okay. coming from that experience of working with refugees in Australia, I was very pro-European because, mm. you know, we needed to stop war in Europe. Uh, so I got, in, I got into this parliament and loved it. But after 10 years, the Labour Party got off its backside and it got the seat off me. So I was out on my ear and not doing anything very much. Um, when suddenly, out of the blue, came a phone call, just like the one from the BBC in 1964. Would you be interested in doing this? And I thought, well, I've got no other job. I may as well just... So I went up to the castle, met the producer, and got the job. Um, how it came about was that the the BBC then, uh, as, as it does now, but it, it was slightly better then, it, it worked with the BBC to produce a programme of the show every year and the producer of the show had been asked by the producer of the tattoo if he could recommend anybody and the chap uh, bumped into my brother who was the senior designer at the BBC in Scotland one day in a place where ladies can't join them and asked him if um, if he knew what I was doing and Guthrie said not a lot and to be fair Ian Christie very kindly suggested my name to Michael Parker, who was then the producer, and he, he wasn't terribly interested in the sound, so he just said, right, okay, you can do it. Pushed down the wages a bit, but so I didn't get very much for it, mm. but uh, I thought, you know, this is, this will be fun. And I'd never done anything like that before. No shows, no big wow. events, and so you start at what, the top. What makes you just go, aye, I'll do that? Because it sounds like that's a recurring theme, like, Obviously, people were approaching you because they saw something in you that you maybe didn't maybe, you're see right. yourself. I don't you know. You know, with the phone call for the radio and then the tattooing, what is it about I don't know. that you make, makes you just go, aye, well, I'll give it a go? <laughs> Ian Christie from the BBC knew that I'd been an announcer in the past. Mm -hmm. He also knew that I'd been in the TA because he'd seen me coming into the BBC in uniform and he'd put two and two together and I suppose they just thought, oh, that's a good good combination, I'll mm. try it. Then, I guess, being on the radio and, and doing a live performance on that scale is different, it's completely different. Oh, it's completely, you know, utterly still different. Using yeah, obviously some utterly of the different. skills, of course, yeah. but it's completely different. Aye, yeah, absolutely. No, so I'm... then script writing for that, then you collating all the information that you need to, yeah. is that something that you still to this day have yes. to go about or yes. wow oh, yeah. okay having started as a newspaper reporter well not the very first job but having had early mm. jobs as a newspaper reporter I'd honed some skill at writing the skill of writing a script for a show like that is a different one but putting together words words to be spoken aloud are different to words to be read on a page so Having broadcast, I understood the business of what needed to be done for words that could be spoken. Mm. And it just worked. And do you rehearse in advance? Like, oh, yes. What is your process? Well, the producer tells me what his theme is. 
Having never been to the tattoo, I did not know there was a theme. Well, there's 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 always a sort of thread, ah. and and that's changed over the years. In the past, it was very strongly um, military anniversaries. You know, some two hundredth year of the raising of the Gordon Highlanders, or oh, the three hundred and fifty of the Scots Guards, or whatever. Mm. Um, in recent years, the present producer has introduced more ephemeral themes. I mean, this year's theme in, in 2019 was kaleidoscope, which was oh. shapes and colours mm. which kept changing. Okay. I mean, there was a Scottish connection to that, but not a military one. Because, mm. Of course, the man who invented the kaleidoscope was Sir David Brewster, who was born in Jedburgh in the Scottish borders and died at Gattenside. So it was an entirely Scottish... Wow. Matter, although he was building on the work of Sir Isaac Newton, I ought to be fair to say. <laughs> but, um, wow. you know, it, David has been, uh, has been working towards more that sort of theme. But mm. nonetheless, there's always a thread that runs through each one. Yeah. I mean, we're taking the tattoo down to Australia in October. And the theme there will be sort of indigenous culture, sort of southern hemisphere culture, South Pacific. Yes. Are you? Yeah. Is that something you've done before? Yes. Okay. So. Wow. You know, but um, it's it it works. But Mm. you've got to be able to tell a great deal in a very few words. So you can't afford to let your hand just run away with you. You've Mm. got to learn how to how to paraphrase everything very, very neatly. Okay. So you get it all done in a couple of sentences, bang, and you're on to the next thing. But you knit it together. You're the glue that holds it together and keeps it moving. Of course. You've got a very large cast mm. in the tattoo, maybe about 12, 1,400 people. These acts need to know where they are. They need to know what they're doing. So after a few shows, they get it into their heads what they're going to hear how long they've got when I start speaking, maybe 10, 14 seconds, something like that. Mm. Um, and if I was to vary that and start wandering off, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, what am I like here, eh? <laughs> you know, uh, in a minute, I lads, you know, that, that would be completely yeah. awful. Yeah. The, the, I, the decision has to be there. I don't regard the narrator as being a central character in the show. The show is the performers. But you've seen me at the Sterling Military Show. I knit it together. I keep it moving. Beautifully. But I am not the centre of attraction. So the narration should be brief, to the point, informative, but keep the audience's momentum up, mm. you know? So have you done other kind of like things like after dinner speaking, these yeah. kind of events? How, how did they differ? Well, they re- require you continuous speaking for varies. I mean, 10 minutes, 15, 20, mm. 40, you know, yeah. it just depends on the length of mm. the thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a good immortal memory you can get done in 15 or 20 minutes. Some people really over-egg it and run 45 50 55 minutes an hour and they don't they don't realize the audience has long lost interest i always feel like like at weddings when the groomsman speech you're like everybody's starving yeah you're like keep it succinct shut up (laughs) or shut up sit down listen (laughs) in to everybody else let's get our dinner yeah so i try to keep it form like 
to be able to speak publicly and like you say get the information across Aye. make it clear make it engaging and not to waffle on or be too self-indulgent yeah, but I always ask the the, the, the the person asking me how long do you want how yeah. long do they expect what do their meetings normally do so I'm doing one next week which will be which for which they want 15 minutes right um, a week or two later an- another group in the same town wants 40 minutes on the same subject yeah right I'll speak really slowly. You could do it that way, but on the other hand, although funnily enough, that that does remind me about a um, an incident which occurred on the BBC in Northern Ireland, where I can't remember exactly what exactly what happened, but the announcer um, had to read the news. Uh, he was given a five minute bulletin to fill a ten minute slot, and that's exactly what he did. He just read it very, very. Slowly. <laughs> Brilliant. Everything nodding off. Aye, I mean, terrible, terrible thing, that. You know, ghastly pro- pro- proposition. I, 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 I can't imagine for an instance that you would do that, also. <laughs> but of course, the other thing on a live show is that you have to be prepared for any emergency. Yes. I mean, people in the tattoo, I don't say quite regularly, but from time to time, have heart attacks or taken ill in the stands mm. and so on and so on and so forth. So you have quite often to be ready to just fill in and maybe a minute, maybe 10, maybe 30. So, you know, you need to carry with you a lot of filling material. Mm. But you just have the, those years of experience and all the different hats, as I say, that you've worn, that will all lend itself to helping you to be able it to does. do that without, you know, it does. Yeah. How, how long have you been announcing it? Well, I've done 28 years in the tattoo, which has amounted to 700 performances up at at the castle. Goodness. I mean, the fact that you drove here all the way from Kelso, is that right? Yeah. Today, I thought, that man has just... I mean, you've literally just finished the tattoo. Yeah, astound and amaze me. (laughs) And we're talking about writing scripts. We're talking about being succinct, writing what... You know, getting the information down, not waffling on. It's my favourite pastime. You have also written some books. You're an author. You're a published author. <laughs> this is what I didn't know. <laughs> the Tattoo Fox. Yes. Again, how did that come around? Was that one of those magical phone calls that you get? No. Right. This, okay. <laughs> this was the the present the, the present producer. When the first year he took over, he said he was sitting in the stands one night in the dark, just trying to think, just trying to visualise the show, looking up at the castle in the dark, trying to, trying to see the show in his mind's eye. And he heard this scrabbling, and he looked along the stands, which in those days were metal, and he saw a fox. And he thought, oh. So he looked at the fox, and the fox looked at him, and um, David didn't say a word, and neither did the fox. And the fox got bored after about half a minute and sloped <laughs> off. And David said to me in a casual sort of way one day, he said, I think that would make a lovely children's story. And without thinking, without pausing to consider what I was saying, I said, oh, I write wee stories, I could do that. Um, But then, of course, writing a book isn't as easy as it looks. Okay, right. Tell all. Please do. I started, (laughs) I could not get this book started. I tried to envisage what this fox might be, where it might have come from, what it was doing, blah, 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 blah. And so I wrote a story about a little border fox 
who saw her brother being run over by a lorry on a narrow country road in the borders and ran off in fright and then realized she didn't know where she was. She couldn't think how to get back to her uh, dead in the borders. And so she kept going and went right up over Sutra Hill and saw Edinburgh in the distance and kept going until she got up there and so on and so forth. Well, trying to get this thing started was just a nightmare. And I worked for about three months trying to get it going and couldn't. And I thought I was on the point of saying to the producer, I'm sorry, David, I'll have to let you down. Um, and then I suddenly thought, no, my regiment, the parachute regiment, does not back away from a challenge. That's just I will do this. Yeah. And in four days I had it written. Wow. Well, now that's sort of unheard of and silly. Writers don't do that. And it, But it happened. It, mm. it just worked. I suddenly so got into the notion of it. it. Hmm? The story was there, it was in you, you just had to find yeah, it. Yeah, well, what it, what these little books are, uh, or the tattoo, uh, there are two Tattoo Fox books, and they're really a dozen, they're 12 little stories about the fox, but they're mm -hmm. strung together in a sort of consecutive yeah, way, lovely. so they follow a thread, and so I just buckled down and wrote it, and then the Tattoo sort of submitted it for to the Edinburgh Book Festival, And the publisher rang up and said, who's your publisher? And they said, we haven't got one. He said, I'll do it. And in breakneck, breakneck speed, unheard of in publishing, he had the thing illustrated and published and out in time for the book festival. Yes. That was it. Uh, so then I wrote another one the next year. And while that was doing the rounds, the, the first one won a little prize down the borders for the Heart of Hoik children's book awards and it was voted for by the children well it was but and that was really pleasing of course uh, so then I wrote another one and that was fine and then I was coming up to my 25 years of narrating the tattoo and so I thought oh I could write a little book that just covered what I've been doing yeah. in those 25 years both at the tattoo and all the other shows and tattoos of a yeah. similar kind I'd done around the world So that went out, called The Greatest Show on Earth. And then uh, the publisher came and asked me if I could make up a, compile a book of old Scots nursery rhymes, but they all had to be out of copyright. So <laughs> I was trawling back. I mean, I'm remembering nursery rhymes from my childhood yes. um, in the southwest of Scotland. And I'm um, buying books and looking at old books of nursery rhymes and realized that actually there hadn't been a book of Scots nursery rhymes for years. So, You're joking. Goodness, no? right. So I compiled a book, and, but I had to throw a lot of them out because the use of Scots by children is diminishing. Mm -hmm. And it, even in the, last, in the previous 30 years since the last one had been published, the use of Scots had diminished. So I had to throw out many of the nursery rhymes that wouldn't be understood by today's children. Oh, There's no goodness. point in putting in things that, you yeah, know, that make might, could them. be in Czechoslovakia and all mm. they knew. So that was fun doing that. I really enjoyed doing that. Do you have a favourite nursery rhyme? It's very difficult, <laughs> very <laughs> difficult to just say, but I suppose, you know, Wee Willy Winky is is a remarkable thing because it's a, it's, it's a bit of social history, you know. Mm. You know, upstairs and downstairs, in his necht goon, chapping at the windies, crying at the lock. Are all the bernies in their beds? It's past eight o'clock. Oh, you know. see, I would have said ten o'clock. You said 
Eight o'clock? Yes. Oh, eight o'clock. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> but, oh, when I was young, you were in bed by eight. But Is that eight? Obviously, things have... have <laughs> That's why you have a productive not, day, Alistair. <laughs> so that was fun to do that. Yeah, I really enjoyed cool. doing that. That's amazing. Oh, that was great fun. And then... You have this air about you, Alistair, that you're just like, hi, I wrote a book. Hi. <laughs> I jumped out of plane several times. <laughs> I mean, I've just I've just been the voice of the military tattoo for twenty years. I should tell you, I've got another one just out. Have you? Aye. Go for it. I promised uh, when, when I was the chairman of the Edinburgh Walter Scott Club, I went and met a, a gathering of owners of Dandy Dinmont Terriers at Abbotsford, which was the house that Sir Walter Scott built. Right. And they told me that these little dogs were. A vulnerable native breed they were dying out so I said all right yeah we story about them and see if that'll help to give more bring more attention and I wrote it um, but I couldn't find a publisher until this year okay, right, a wee okay. publisher down in Wigton has published it and a, a lad that lived upstairs above the shop has done the most extraordinary illustrations for it Lovely. so if anybody sees a wee book called mustard and pepper it's a very short book it's for children of about three or four, really. Uh, really, I, I wrote it to be simple, but mm. clear and easy to understand. But there, there's there's a bit of education in it because it's set at Abbotsford. The children in it are Sir Walter Scott's children, and he's he features at the end. Okay. The dogs in it are the real dogs that Sir Walter Scott owned. Okay. And uh, the story is fictional, but maybe it isn't. You just don't know. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I just thought, well, wait and see if this brings any interest, That's renewed lovely. interest in this breed of yeah. little dogs, you know. And the people, obviously, that you met and they told you this story, they must just be delighted. Well, I hope so. Well, I haven't seen them yet. But, um, you see, Sir Walter Scott wrote a book, and they were gathered there in, in 2015, 200 years after the novel Guy Mannering, which you all know was his second novel, um, in which the hero meets... A, a Liddesdale farmer called uh, Dandy Dinmont and goes back with him to his farm and there he has all these dogs um, the, these little terriers yeah. and they're either called Mustard or Pepper Old Mustard, Mustard, Young Mustard Old Pepper, you know <laughs> I mean because of their colour they're yeah, named that way because yeah. of their colours and that, and that was where they were named from that's why they're called Dandy Dinmonts after the farmer in Walter Scott's novel so, so, cool. so that's funny. It's going to be launched yeah. at Abbotsford on the twentieth of September, but probably after the time this goes out. That's but so cool. You know. That's amazing. Just another adventure for you. It's fun. Yeah. Hi. You're all up. You're you're up for a bit of fun. I Wait, get that. I, I hope so. Reality. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> Goodness, now we're we're harking back to this Google malarkey. But when I did Google you, said you're an OBE. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just like. Yeah. Well, I, to be fair, I wasn't shocked at all when I read it. How do you get an OBE? I mean, I think you've probably just... <laughs> you've just shown us... Well, it comes, as a, it, 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 it comes as a great surprise. Um, I mean, this is the first podcast guest and quite possibly the last podcast guest that's going to have an OBE. So I'm, well, <laughs> but I'm it does honored. it does come as a great surprise when you get the letter through the post. So wait, oh, she didn't phone you? Like everybody no. else? No. Oh, I have to now. say, she's busy. <laughs> she's she's too busy for that. <laughs> but I had already got 
what the one it was lovely i mean i got the letter and i thought oh that's really nice that's that's super i'm really pleased with that <laughs> but the one downside of it was okay. i thought i'm gonna have to give up my mbe because i got an mbe for the ta but, 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 there's a subtle difference because the MBE is a military one and it has an extra grey stripe down the centre of the ribbon. Okay. And I rang up St. James's Palace and said, look, I've, I've got a letter saying I've been awarded the OBE. Um, will I have to send you back my MBE, which is a military one? They said, no, you can wear both. You just can't yes. use both in post-nominal letters. So I can't go OBE, MBE, I just go OBE. You just use the senior one. So I'm, I can keep both. the two, you know. Kill. It's great. Oh, it's great fun. <laughs> it's so nice. the OBE came from your work, well, all In the European work. Parliament. Yes, uh-huh. Aye, that was for the political mm. service. Um, the MBE came for the military service. Goodness. So, oh, it's fun, you know. So you went, but it's nice you went to get down and got something. presented then? And yes. Oh, yes. All the pomp and ceremony. All oh, it's... A, they, you, I mean, you would have just... There is nothing to beat the skill, the smooth organisation and handling of the courtiers in Buckingham Palace. Oh, they are so good. They're just amazing. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't get a job while you were there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they're just, they just put you at your ease. They make you feel you're the most special person in the world, even though there's dozens and dozens mm. of other people all lining up to get their honours. But they just... They're just it's just so smooth you don't feel rushed you don't feel um you don't feel as though you're being just put on a conveyor belt and her majesty is the most extraordinary woman i should tell you i'm also a member of the royal company of archers and i have stood as a as a sort of archer bodyguard at the investitures at the palace of holyrood house and on one occasion i stood opposite her majesty so i was able to watch her at work and she looks at the recipient and she talks to the recipient for maybe 45 50 seconds Mm -hmm. and the way she does it you would have no doubt that this person is the most interesting person she has ever met but after about 45 or 50 seconds she very gently unobtrusively surreptitiously just moves them along Mm. and the next one comes up she is an absolute star I can't describe how how much I admire her. She's so good at her job. She's worth every penny. Great. That's good to hear. (laughs) As someone who's witnessed it, obviously, in the flesh. Oh, no, she's she's amazing. Uh, So So I have every every regard for her. Mm. And I hope she goes on roll. Oh, when did I get that? Oh, 1989, I suppose. We presented in 1990, but it was awarded in 1989. Surely you're due another... No, 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 no. You need to, no, I've got enough. I've got plenty. I, it's, it's expensive getting these things mounted. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, what's next? What are you up to next? What are you doing next? Well, um, the publisher asked me if I would write another mustard and pepper story. So I've got an idea for that. Great. There are shows to do here, there, and everywhere. I've got the tattoo in Australia, and then. When I come back, we're into brass bands. I present a lot of the brass band competitions. Right, the big okay. ones. Wow, you know. right. So I'm doing one in Fife at the end of September, and then the main body is through November. They do the big brass band competitions then. So, Goodness. you know. Do you ever have a day off, Alistair? 
I don't think I understand the question. I don't think you do. (laughs) Is it just that you want to live your life to the full? Yes. I think the one thing I noticed about my mother, who lived in Stonehouse, by the way, did she now? She did. Not too far from here. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we had this conversation about you coming out to Belsil and you did say that you, you had been here before, but you drove through it quite, quite quickly. Quickly, quickly. Or <laughs> well, somebody had the wheels off the car. No, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Aye, um, aye, aye. But uh, no, my mother aye. lived in Stonehouse. But the one thing I noticed about her was that she never, to the, to the last day, she never lost her curiosity. She was always interested in something, and I hope that I've inherited that from her. Oh, you absolutely have. You absolutely have. And, you know, like you, you were talking about your mum earlier on, to, to move... Are you an only child? No, no, no. I, had a bro- I have a brother and sister younger than me. Right, okay. So to move across the world with her family on her own and, you know, get into to working in the, the costume department and just... She's obviously had that spirit of, like, just carry on, let's do this. Yep. Well, yeah. don't forget, she had lived through the Second World War, and she was working in the London theatre when the war broke out, mm. and the house that she and my father and I were living in was bombed. So she had been through a catharsis far worse than most Jeez. people have to endure these mm. days. The house was blown up. And so she just had to gather up everything that was left and get on a train, unlit, unheated, that took 16 hours to get from London back to Scotland with a three-month-old child. And you think somebody that can do that is honed in the fire. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, she came from a generation where girls were not expected to be educated, they were expected to be um, good homemakers. And she was an extremely fine parent, I must mm. say. And of course, growing up during the Second World War, when food was scarce, she managed to feed us and bring us up extraordinarily well. You know, she grew food, she knew how to make the most of scraps. So it was a good, it was a good lesson. Mm. I'm going to move on to the thingamabobs. I could talk to you all day. Like, in fact, I could just listen to you all day. Your story is absolutely fascinating. But the thingamabobs are going to just reveal a wee bit more about Alistair, just in case anyone feels like they don't quite know you just yet. Now, talking about books, on the theme of books, you have to write an autobiography. Surely, Alistair. Surely. Nobody would buy it. Nobody would be interested. I would your head, as they would say. Of course they would. I'm going to ask you to dream up a title for your autobiography. Just out of thin air. (laughs) (laughs) I think it would just have to be me, question mark. Why me? (laughs) Would you never consider it? I haven't, no. I think you should. I don't think anybody would be interested. But I'll buy it. I'll be first in the queue. It, it, may, it may take more than one sale. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, as I say, I'm very honoured that you've, you, you've chosen to share your story. With oh, me well, it's a pleasure. <laughs> so I've, I've, I've enjoyed your dancing over oh, many years kind. at that Sterling. You know? I feel like you're an honorary member of the troop now. Oh, thank you, you very much. I'm to get you an outfit by this point. I, I'm not sure I would do you <laughs> proud somehow. <laughs> Um, 
Which award ceremony or event would you like to host that you haven't? Now, there's not many events that you've not probably um, hosted, but is there one that you um, think would be cool? I suppose doing the British Legion Festival of Remembrance, the Albert Hall would be interesting. You know? how, how do we make that happen? Well, um, the, 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 the people at the Albert Hall once, the Legion did once say they would like me to do it, and the BBC vetoed it and put their own man in, so I don't yeah. think it's ever going to happen. But it would be interesting to do it, you know, because yeah. a lot of the concerts and shows and things they do are to raise money for service charities for wounded and wounded servicemen and their families and things like that. Yeah. So that would all go, that would all be right in mm. the right zone. Yeah, absolutely. These causes and putting your your voice to them and the effort that goes into them is is that just something throughout your life you've just wanted to support other people and their endeavours? Oh, if I can, I will. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, yes. I mean, I the will. fact that you're here today, I, I know how busy you are. I mean, like you say, what, what's a day off? But the fact you're here to support my humble podcast. Oh no, I, I'm like, honoured. I'm so honoured to be asked. What is a podcast? <laughs> what am I getting myself into today? But you were kind enough. I, I mean, I hadn't even told you what it was when, when we met at Stirling over the summer. And I was like, Alistair, would you be... Ah, yeah, uh-huh. You just said yes straight away. And I'm like, I've not even told you what it is. But you're so... You've got that kind spirit just to say, yeah, I'll get involved. If I can help somebody, I will. Well, I think that came from my mother. I have a, I have a strong, vivid memory that uh, just towards the end of the war, a rather sort of scrawny little woman... Uh, with an infant, knocked on the door and said she was homeless. And my mother took her in. That's you know? goodness. Uh, and I think, you know, I suppose I must have inherited some of that sort of spirit, yeah. you know. Yeah, and we need more of that in the world. You're good people, Alistair. Oh, well, I don't know about that. Mm. But, you know. I'm, I'm, good. I'm getting a bit frivolous, but you know. <laughs> I'm desperate for you to write a book or be in a film. <laughs> Who would play you... In the film about your life. Oh heavens! Would it be you? The, the, the trouble is, I don't know enough about who are the who are the stars of today. You know. <laughs> you can you can you can go stars of the past. I don't mind. I mean, it's your question. Well, I suppose if you were if you were looking at great, you know, great actors who've done, you know, who do. I mean, Robert Donut is a name that's probably not known to you. No. He was a great star in the nineteen thirties. Oh, he played in the Alfred Hitchcock version of The 39 Steps. I remember him best in a thing called The Ghost Goes West, which is a brilliant film about an American who buys a Scottish castle, dismantles it stone by stone, and takes it to America. But what he doesn't realise is that he is also taking with him the ghost. Cool, right, okay. <laughs> that is a story. <laughs> so, it's maybe, you know, he, he, was a, he was a good egg. He was a nice sort of actor. So. Yeah, we'll go with him. Right, Sounds okay. Good. What is the best sound ever? Silence. No sound. Peace. Tranquility. Just an absence of noise. And where do you find that silence? Well, I find it very difficult to find because I've got tinnitus. So I've got a constant ringing oh, in the ears the whole really? damn time. So I would just love it if it went away, you know? Do you really? Oh, my goodness. But I suppose if you want me to make a sound, if I want to identify an actual sound, I suppose a well-modulated voice reading 
well-written words, poetry or even prose, that would be, you know, somebody who's really, really good at it, like Sir John Keelgood or Sir Lawrence Olivier, some of, some of these people who are real masters of the art. That's a beautiful sound. What's a moment in your past that you would want to relive again? I'm terribly tempted to say um, that first aircraft jump. You know, it would be very interesting to just go back, having done all lots and lots of them since, just to go back and feel that again and think, oh gracious, this is what it felt like when it started. Mm. On the other, on the other hand, no, maybe. I have a very vivid recollection of those sunsets on board the boat that was taking us to Australia and those long wakes stretching out behind the vessels. Those are those are experiences which you can't get nowadays. And I think maybe, maybe yes, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Just gazing at the sunset over the stern of a liner going south was very very nice you know because it was new it was it was adventurous you'd never seen it before you never see it again and you know it was it stays with you can you finish this sentence when i was we i um tried not to be too naughty do you have a naughty streak in you, Alistair? Oh, well, not really, no. I'm a very <laughs> law-abiding person. Um, I don't need you to reveal anything. I'm trying to think. Do you, want, do you want me to tell you something I did when I was wee? Aye. Right. When I, my, my first school was in Gatehouse of Fleet down in Galloway. It's just a small town in Galloway. And I, in the class, my very first class, I sat behind a girl called Isabel Mary Gibson. And Isabel Mary Gibson had pigtails. And I looked at these pigtails and found that I was quite, quite unable to resist the temptation to lean forward and pull them. And when, we're just asking, asking to be pulled. When, I, when I'd done it, I realized that this was an error of judgment. <laughs> was she, she, but I have to say, Miss Guthrie, the teacher, didn't do anything too unfortunate. She gave me a row, but that mm. wasn't too serious. Funnily enough, I met Isabel Mary Gibson many, 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 many years later in Dumfries. And I have to say, she was looking the worse for wear, but... <laughs> 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 so the experience may well have... <laughs> uh, the experience may well have traumatised her for life. I love it. <laughs> Salt or sugar in your porridge? God, only salt. I never have sugar near no. porridge. Good God, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Don't feel judged at all, Alistair. <laughs> it divides the nation, by the way, that question. Oh, does it? Oh, I. Oh, oh no, I, I, yeah. I would be a salt man, definitely. Fair enough. Sugar be a travesty in porridge. <laughs> Although I did ask one person who was a chef, actually, and he was like, neither. I hate porridge. It's oh, well, I, I mean, if I had a choice not to have them, I think I wouldn't have either. But if right. you ask me to choose between them, mm. I prefer salt to sugar. Fair dues. Best advice ever given to you? I can't think of it immediately, but I suppose the, I suppose the best, the best thing, is that the army has an expression, time spent on reconnaissance is seldom wasted. And I think that is very, very good advice. 
In other words, look before you leap. Look mm. carefully at what you're about to do. Work it out. Think it through. And then decide. So I think I'd probably go with that. So anytime you've had those magical phone calls, you've just taken a wee pause before you said yes? I didn't pause, I have to say. <laughs> you just went your gut. Aye, absolutely. <laughs> and it's definitely worked out. <laughs> the, other, the other thing, of course, is that uh, the army has an expression that... Um, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. So <laughs> you always know, whatever, however hard you work at preparing for something, the moment you start, it's going to go up yeah. in the air. So be ready for, be ready for anything. Yeah. My regimental motto is Utrinque Paratus, ready for anything. There you go. And my last question, I ask everyone this one. What is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? Um, <laughs> golly. <laughs> Thrawn, I suppose. Ah. You sounded like you weren't going to be sure there, and then you just were there well, with that. Well, I, I was thinking about Bampot, but actually Thrawn <laughs> is more... Uh, Thrawn is a very, very expressive word, mm. you know. It says more than stubborn. It's just, it just expresses something you can't say in English, you know. <laughs> Alistair, this has been an absolute joy. You, I mean, we've not, we've barely touched the surface in terms of what you've done, and I know that. But you were a definite brave, brave material from the get go, <laughs> and I'm just so delighted that you're here, especially when I know how busy you are. You're going off to do an event tomorrow, two events tomorrow? Well, we've got a memorial service for six of our parachuting colleagues who died in a, on an exercise in Germany when uh, we did a night drop and um, um, six guys died when they, they, they drifted into the Kiel Canal in Germany. And so I was on that drop and uh, my second in command died. So we're going to... We're going to... Uh, remember them mm. and you know have a public commemoration of their lives yeah. and that's very special that you can be part of that and, yes and honor them yeah so mm. it's just one of those ways in which see we call them we call the parachutists the, the parachute regiment we call it the airborne brotherhood and it's one way in which the brotherhood can can pay its respects to its members you're a man who's very passionate about a lot of things and this the brawn the brave is about people and their passions that's really what the podcast was born out of but for me the sense that i get from you is that you're just passionate about life that you want to live it to the full <laughs> he's nodding profusely oh, let's see. <laughs> your your motto is just be ready for anything really yeah you drink quite paratus and on that note we will finish. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Brawn the Brave, a podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.